Good morning. Kids, you can head out. There are classes in the back. Teachers will be there to meet you. For the rest of us, we'll be in the book of James this morning. So if you can get out your Bibles, that would be great. Looking forward to sharing God's Word with you. There are Bibles in the back. If you'd like a Bible, you'll need one for this morning. Please raise up your hand and one of the ushers will bring one to you. If you have one of the Bibles in the back, we're on page 1,199. This is our second study in the book of James. And we'll be picking up in chapter 1, verse 19. So James chapter 1, verse 19 In my experience, being a young teen is one of the hardest stages of life. There's insecurities, there's floods of emotion, there's going through puberty, exciting, struggling with independence. And if there's one attribute that defines the travail of the teenage years, it must be the zit, (laughs) the pimple, acne. You wake in the the morning with an ache upon your face, And then you walk groggily to the mirror, and you reflect upon your once baby-smooth skin. And there, this red mountain begins to grow. Your first reaction is to try to deny it, but that fails. Your second reaction is usually to try to cover it up. We have something called cover-up, but that lasts only for so long. Denial and covering up only delays the inevitable. Your reflection in the mirror is revealing a problem that is beneath the skin, and there is a coming eruption. The zit is a befitting befitting description of the difficult teenage years. I know they were very hard for me. And as teenagers are helped by their parents who have gone before them, we need help to navigate the Christian pubescence, that time between now and and the time where we enter into eternity when Christ comes or at our death. This morning, our elder brother James is seeking to help us. And his words are going to act as a mirror to reflect what is hidden beneath the skin that is in our hearts. God preserved James's word because God cares about us today. That's, that's why he cares about us. He wants to share his word with us today. So this morning... Please consider this important message. We'll see it up on the screen. As a mirror reflects your physique, your appearance, your actions reflect your faith. I'll say it again. As a mirror reflects your physique, your actions reflect your faith. Your actions, my actions, reveal what I truly believe within. And James helps us to reflect on this in two parts. We're going to look at this in two parts. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, we're going to reflect on our reaction. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we're going to reflect on our compassion. So reaction and then compassion. Let me begin by reading James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. You can follow along with me. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. 
for he looks at himself and goes away at once, at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is addressing his audience, and he addresses them, what he says, as beloved brothers, we see in verse 19. And this is really the heart of this entire level, letter. He cares for his brothers and his sisters. It's family language, and we'll see that family language three times in here. He wants to help. And since he wants to help, James doesn't avoid things. He doesn't cover up. He seeks to reveal. In our first reflection, James seeks to reveal our reactions. And we see in verses 19 through 21, we we reflect on our reaction to discord. Verses 19 through 21, we'll see our reaction to discord. And then in verses 22 to 27, we'll we'll reflect on our reaction to deception. For our reactions, our responses are a window into what we believe. In verses 19 and 20, we see discord. We see conflict. And the subsequent anger of man, it says, does not reflect the righteousness of God. Man's anger, woman's anger, does not produce the holiness, the purity, the goodness of God. Man's anger is much like a tea kettle. It's like a tea kettle. It starts with placid waters, but as the heat is applied, the waters begin to stir. The boiling starts, and the steam rises, and finally the kettle screams out, to unleash the pressure. It would seem that the church was experiencing turmoil within. They were having fits of rage that did not reflect God's long-suffering and patience. Therefore, James instructs his angry family with some very practical advice. You see very practical advice here regarding discord. He says, listen before you speak. Speak only after you have listened well and display anger only when it's appropriate. Now let's start by clarifying. James is not saying something. He is not saying to bottle up our anger. If we bottle up our anger and don't speak, it's like the tea kettle. It just only gets great and then explodes. And he's not saying that anger is wrong. Anger isn't wrong. There's a time to be angry because God himself is angered as well over sin and injustice. But James is addressing what is most often true in a quarrel. We often get angry because we have not listened. And we often speak flippantly before we really considered the situation before us. This problem, it does really strike home to me. I have have this standing problem. I just know it about myself. When I'm faced with discord, I'll hear something for which I disagree, and then instead of actually listening to the person uh, from then on out, I begin to plot in my mind what my counter-argument to their thing is. I'm thinking about it. Instead of listening, I make, an, I make assumptions, and we all know what assumptions do. God gives us much wisdom on hearing and speaking. Proverbs 18:13 says this: if, anyone, if, if, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame." And Proverbs 21:23 says this: "Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble." How many of us can relate to that? 
How, do we, how many of us have found ourselves in trouble because we didn't listen and we didn't speak slowly? I'm guilty. How many of us have hurt others and not reflected God's righteousness in our anger? That's me too. God also uses our biology to give us a hint about um, hearing and speaking. We all know God gave us two ears and one mouth, right? This is also interesting. God gave us two ears and one mouth, but the ears have no cover. The mouth has a door to keep it shut. (laughs) But our most revealing instruction about speech and anger comes from Jesus in Luke 6.45. This is what Jesus said. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Our words, our anger, in reaction to discord, reflect what is in the heart. We would like to say what pours out of our mouths does not reflect what is inside, but that is patently untrue. That which comes out is from within. Our hearts reflect who, or our words reflect who we are. Therefore, since our hearts are evil, our discord, our conflict, is not primarily actually about with man. It's actually, our conflict is actually with God. We are at odds with God. So people, so he calls his people to put away, and he calls them to receive. Look at verse 21. He says, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant, rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word of God. The human heart needs transformation. And the way of transformation is through repentance and faith. By putting off evil and receiving God's righteous, but putting off evil and receiving God's righteous is not possible in and of ourselves. We can't do it on our own. Transformation is only possible by humbly yielding to God's powerful word that is able to save our souls, as it says in this verse. The word can get inside our hearts. If you're not a Christian, we're very glad that you're here, and we're glad that you're hearing God's word. And we know that the message actually that you're hearing right now, that we're um, bad on the inside, that's not the message of the world. The message of the world is that our problems come from outside, Maybe our parents, maybe our um, situations that are surrounding us, maybe circumstances, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that our problems are deep in the soul, and our words and our angers are proof that we need to be healed, that we are at odds with God. And thankfully, Jesus, God's Son, came as a Savior to die in place of sinners for those who have broken hearts. And the only way for our souls to be saved from the judgment to come is to receive the word of God to be, and to be saved from judgment. This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we are giving new hearts. We are born again by God's word. And the way to receive that is to by believing in the message of Jesus, the gospel, and following him. If you'd like to talk about we would love to talk to you about it. I would love to. Any of the members of this church would like to talk to you about following Jesus. But this message, actually in its context, is first written to Christians. When James says, able to save your souls, in verse 21, he is speaking to Christians. And he is telling them that he's talking about the soul's salvation on that last day. 
when they will be freed from all sin and temptation and death. Continuing, not just once, but continuing to receive God's Word marks the enduring follower. Christians, an appetite for God's Word, God's wonderful Word, a desire for God's Word, is one of the sure signs of Christian assurance. A man of one who reacts to God's Word, the implanted Word, into his or her soul, takes it in, these are those who have the assurance of salvation. James sees the anger in his family, and he knows that such anger does not proceed from a heart submitted to God's Word. Therefore, he reminds them of the importance of putting off evil and receiving the Word, reacting to the discord, the conflict, by receiving the precious, implanted Word of God. James goes there, but he doesn't just leave it there. He addresses an even more hidden error in verse 22. It says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The error of hearing but not doing is a subtle one. And why? Because we can convince ourselves that hearing is sufficient. As we look in a mirror and we see our true selves, what is are, what is your reaction when this deception is revealed to you? As we look at our true selves and there's deception, what do we do with that? How do we react to it? So let's understand this pernicious deception in verses 22 to 27. In our day, we have greater access to God's Word than ever before. There are countless Bible versions. There's ESV, KJV, NKGV, NLV, NLT, you could go on and on. There are numerous radio stations filled with preaching. There are new, en- endless podcasts that you can listen to. You can take a seminary class in your own home. There are conferences and retreats that you can travel to. Um, we have something called sh- church shopping because there are so many churches to hear God's word. And this is, there, there's no end to how much Bible you can receive. It's unprecedented in human history. And it really is a great blessing that God's word is so accessible. But it also can be a deception. We can easily take the subtle leap of thinking that listening and hearing the Bible constitutes Christian growth and maturity. This is the deception. For Jesus said this, John 13, 17, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In Matthew 7, he's something similar. He said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. One who hears God's word but does not do it is like a weightlifter who buys the weights, studies the regiment, and takes the weight gainer supplements but doesn't lift the weights. All he gets is a big head and a big gut. (laughs) This is a subtle deception that we face today. Taking taking the supplements of God's word, but not living it out in our lives. We can feel very spiritual while being spiritually immature. In verse 23, James gives a different but a better analogy. Let me read it. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets 
what he is like. The Word of God, we know, is like a mirror into our soul. It is entrancing. It's, it's like no other book, for it can judge the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It reveals who we really are. It shows our true colors. And positively, it tells us this. It tells us that we're made in God's image, and we have great value and worth. But soberingly, it tells us that we are sinners and that we're, we, we need a Savior. Our actions in reaction to God show the reality of what we believe. For example, if we are to look into the, the mirror and we see the pimple of pride, and instead of treating it, we ignore it or cover it up with the cream of comparison. Oh, my pimple's not as bad as your pimple. <laughs> if so, we're deceived. We have seen, but left unchanged. It is possible to look at yourself in the light of God's word, to look at yourself in the light of the gospel, and then to depart unchanged, to neglect and ignore what you see and just continue on. It's really hard to understand our foolishness in this way. But we know that each one of us, to some degree or another, I know myself, have sat in a church service, have heard God's word, felt conviction, wanted a change, but then, after lunch and a few distractions, we, the feeling departs and we go in our way. This is a deception. Instead of reacting to the authority of God's word, we simply trudge on our ways, maybe even feeling good about hearing God's word. The mirror of God's word is meant to reveal this deception. If it's our pattern to react in this way by merely hearing and not doing, then eventually we may think that God's word isn't true. We may begin to think it's not true. We might doubt its power. We might even think it doesn't, he doesn't hear or help. But really, it is us who have not done what we heard and read in God's word. But, verse 25 describes a better way. Look at this one, another way. Look at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And in contrast to deception is blessing. This is what James desires for his hearers. That's why he wrote this letter. This is what the Lord desires for you and me. That's why he's giving it to us to hear. The perfect law in this verse, the law of liberty, is the old, are the Old Testament scriptures as interpreted and fulfilled, interpreted by and fulfilled in Jesus. We normally place liberty and law in juxtaposition, in contrast, for the law involves control, not freedom. But when Christ came, he perfectly fulfilled the law. He lived under the law without sin. And the law which showed bondage for every other man or woman, for Jesus it proved his freedom from sin. And Jesus, as a son of God and son of man, through his suffering and then victorious life, became representative of all his followers. This is the gospel, the good news. Therefore, his people can look into the perfect law and find freedom and liberty. For Jesus has freed them from, his, from sin's penalty and sin's power. The follower of Christ is free in Christ to do what the law of liberty says. And in so doing, 
he finds great blessing from God. This is the good news of the gospel. But even so, the one who reacts by doing God's word will be faced with opposition from without, circumstances, and from within. For sin's power has been defeated, but the presence of sin, we all know, remains. The enemy of our souls wants us to hear and then forget. This is why there needs to be perseverance and enduring to act upon God's word faithfully over time. I just calculated, I didn't realize it, but I've been a Christian now for over 20 years. And I have failed many more times than the 20. (laughs) Count up the days. In so doing, however, I've learned something about God's patience and I've learned an important truth. God has grace for my failures. And he doesn't leave me in my failures. He will send his precious word to me over and over and over in various ways until I react by doing it. And when I react by doing it, this is the neat thing, he kindly reveals more of his word to me. He gives more of it to me. And then there's a thrill in that. And then you do it again, and you begin to grow. And through many mistakes, he helps you to preserve, and then he reveals a bit more. So slowly but surely, in a cyclical progression of learning perseverance and endurance, you grow as a Christian, and you're blessed. Blessing is what God desires for you. And he's persistent to send you his precious word. So as you gaze into the mirror of God's word, there's an appropriate and an inappropriate reaction. To help you respond well, James now provides three qualities of true religion that help us to identify deception and leads to blessing. Look at verses 26 and 27. I'll read it. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James here lists controlled speech, compassionate care, and clean living as marks by which we can identify true religion. He is helping us to fight against the appearance of religiosity while practicing worthless religion. In verse 26, the test is the controlled speech. So we ask ourselves questions. Is your tongue unruly? Is it wild like a horse without a bridle? Do you use your words? The use of your words, would you be embarrassed to hear them repeated in church? Or, and start of verse 27, compassionate care. Are you compassionate towards the vulnerable? Do you reach out and try to help those who are hurting? Do you sacrifice your time and your comfortability to alleviate affliction of others? And at the end of verse 27, the test is clean living. Is the trajectory of your life toward purity? Do you strive for cleanness in your behavior and in your conscience? Would your friends identify you as one who desires to be separate from impurity? These are helpful qualities, marks, to identify where is your life trajectory going? Is it toward hearing and doing God's word? And James gives us these qualities so self-deception will not rule and blessing might come. 
what is your reaction to God's word? That's really the question. Do you hear and do? Is the direction of your life reflecting the righteousness of God? Examine yourselves in the mirror of God's word and see what's happening. Don't be deceived, but be blessed. That's what God desires for you. Now, our second look into the mirror, our second reflection is upon compassion. God shows compassion and mercy for the weak and the needy. And considering our sins in this last reflection, we can now be thankful for God's compassion. And as his people, the Lord desires our lives to reflect reflect his compassion as well. His compassion is mercy. Let's read James chapter 2, 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Verses 1 through 13 must be considered in the, through the lens of God's compassion and mercy. James is addressing a specific injustice, and this is the injustice of partiality. But the point is a bit larger. The church's act of partiality reflects a lack of compassion and mercy. So we're going to look at this in three parts. We're going to see this in three parts. We're going to see human partiality in verses 1 through 4. We're going to see God's impartiality in verses 5 through 7. And then our motivation for mercy, our motivation for mercy in verses 8 through 13. So let's consider the situation before us. It's kind of straightforward. But in verse 1, James says, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So it's clear from this opening statement that James's church family was living in contradiction. Holding a faith, but living contrary to that faith. Following Jesus, whom they know to be the Lord of glory, yet showing partiality. Consider that God does not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42 tells us that. And yet, the divine Son of God, in union with the Father, is full of glory. And this is why what is happening here is so shocking. Followers of Jesus, holding a faith in the Lord of glory, yet living a lackluster life, living a tarnished existence. In verses 2 through 4, James illustrates this inequity 
the inequity that is occurring in the church. The man of wealth is given privilege. The man of poverty, he's relegated. The man who can offer something is promoted. The man who needs something is degraded. Unlike their merciful Lord, the church is operating on utilitarian principles. That means the members of the church are welcoming those who have utility. If you can offer something to the church, whether it be money or status or power, then show them honor. But if they have nothing to offer and maybe a burden through time or expense, then disregard them. In many ways, um, we can be proud of our culture. Our Judeo-Christian roots have taught us to embrace all classes of people. The American ideal is that people, all people have an opportunity to succeed, and we don't have a caste system like many cultures. But even though we can value diversity, our reality has not always matched. We all know this. We have and do judge based on social status. We have and do judge based on sex. We have and do judge based on color or poverty or um, wealth or appearance or intelligence. We make these judgments. And yet, what gently does this, our society hold? Well, we know these things to be wrong, but we still, when we look in the mirror, we can see ourselves being partial. Humans are partial by nature. We generally choose those who are most like us, those who are part of our tribe. So let me ask you this question. How do you choose your friends? How do you choose those who you invite into your homes? How do you choose those that we bring to church or talk with after service? Do we first consider their value as people, or do we consciously or subconsciously first consider their utility? Is he going to be, you know, helpful in my life? Or is she going to be convenient to me? Or is that student or that child going to be a drain in my time? I know I catch myself. I make these judgments. I've avoided at times certain types of people because it makes my life just a little bit easier. I've chosen whom to welcome based on what is probably going to be most comfortable to me, the conversation the most comfortable. That usually means that someone who's you know, going to be agreeable to me. This is a sign of partiality. Importantly, James, though, he goes on in verses 5 through 7, and he shows how God chooses, but he remains impartial. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Being impartial, this is important, being impartial does not mean not choosing. It means choosing for the right reasons. Consider this. Consider a jury. A jury must make a decision. But, the fact, but that fact doesn't mean that the jury is partial. A jury is partial when it prejudges. When it judges apart from the facts, maybe uh, for social or selfish gain. If the jury chooses for the right reasons, it is honorable and impartial. God does make choices, but he doesn't make choices for his own gain. He doesn't judge based on external characteristics. God looks at the heart, and he chooses with mercy and compassion. 
As James says here, and throughout the Bible, God chooses those who are poor in spirit gain the kingdom. Those who are weak receive strength. Those who are humble are exalted. Those who are poor are made rich. This is an amazing truth about God. Being impartial does not mean not choosing. It means choosing for the right reasons. A clear example of this, you guys know the story, is God choosing Mary to give birth to his own son. His reason was that of mercy and generosity. Mary declared this to be so. Listen to her words, Luke 1, 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked at the, on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty does, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God chooses those who are the least. And in response, they love him, as we see there at the end of verse 5. How do you and I choose the people in our lives? Are our choices based on mercy and generosity and compassion? Or would he choose based on what we might receive or gain from the relationship? We should think now, just think about you know, our neighbors or our classmates or those who relate in small groups. Those who choose to follow the Lord in living compassion like our, our Father, those who take in maybe the young or the elderly or the poor or the disabled, though, these are those who are displaying the heart and character of God. Just this last week, I was blessed. There's a young couple in our church who just decided, I'm going to have a whole bunch of young people over on a Friday night and have games, game night. They could have done anything they wanted at that time, but they just said, I'm going to take in some others and care for them. This is the heart of compassion and mercy. In verses 6 to 7, James continues to explain this logic of God's choice. Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who press you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So it's important to say here that wealth isn't the reason that God um, critiques them. It's not their riches. It is the attitude that comes with the riches. It's this superiority complex that often can come. Wealth in and of itself is neutral, but there's a great temptation toward pride when wealth is there. And this pride can manifest itself in oppressing people, and in fact, here it says, blasphemy, speaking against God and Jesus himself. Now, it could seem that gaining friends with the wealthy or adding deep pockets in a church would be to a church's benefit. But if those attributes come with a pompous pride, then the church is always better off being poor. The church and its members in James's time, were oppressed and sued by the rich, we see in verse 6. And the honorable name of Jesus was even blasphemed, profaned by the same in verse 7. In the church, it is illogical to think that our success could, should come through riches or should be displayed through beauty or power. These are often our betrayers. This is the way that the world naturally chooses. It's this external glory. Actually, poverty and homeliness and weakness are the tools that God normally uses. He looks inside. Think of Jesus. Think of him for a second. Though he was rich, he became 
poor. Though he shined in glory, in his humanity had no form or majesty. Though he was powerful, he became weak, weak even unto death. And all this, why? Well, for the sake of others. This is God's compassion on full display. Christians, our actions are intended to reflect the character of God. And the reality of your faith is shown through your compassion toward others. By grace, your name is forever attached to the honorable name of Jesus. Christian, connected to Christ, the honorable name of Jesus forever. Therefore, as we conclude with verses 8 through 13, consider, like, what is to come? Consider the motivation of mercy and the rewards that will come at the end for those who show mercy. Look at verse 8. I'll read verses 8 through 13 again. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your, neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin or convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The Bible calls us to act and speak in congruence and harmony with our Savior. And we are given eternal, eternal motivations to do so. The mercy and the compassion we display will be the mercy and the compassion that we will get. This is really the conclusion. This is the point of verse, the end of, here, of verse 13. So let's look a little bit closer. The royal law, in verse 8, and the law of liberty, which we talked about before, but it's also in verse 12, is again referencing the Old Testament scriptures as, inspi- as interpreted by and fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, this is the gospel. And as followers of Christ, this is our law, the royal law, the law of liberty, the gospel. We have a king, royal law, we have a king who has fulfilled the law. And we are freed, law of liberty, and from the penalty of and power of sin. Therefore, we are free to follow our king into his freedom. And that freedom, that freedom is to love our neighbor. An impossibility, really an impossibility without the gospel of Jesus. The problem in the churches, in the churches of James's time and the problem of our time is partially choosing who our neighbor is. In fact, this was a problem, if you remember, that Jesus actually was directly asked about. There was a man who wanted him to show himself that he was caring for his neighbor, and so he came and wanted to justify himself and asked Jesus the question. I actually like you to all turn there. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 10. Let's read this story. It, it's because it's so important to helping us understand what's happening here in James. Luke chapter 10, verse 29. We see this man who comes to Jesus asking a question, who is my neighbor? But he, this man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed, on, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So Jesus there paused. He's going to ask, he asks the question. This is what he says. Which of the three of these men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man who wanted to justify himself said, the one who showed mercy, showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. According to James 2.8, the, the royal law is fulfilled by those who love their neighbor. And their neighbor, according to Jesus in this story, is the one who, who, whom they may have compassion upon. All people who you can have compassion upon. And really the convicting part of the story, if you really get it, the convicting part of the story, is those who claim to be the most religious were the least. The religious show this staggering degree of partiality and inaction. They did nothing. Well, the unlikely Samaritan showed great compassion and mercy through action. Are we like the Christians to whom James is correcting? Do we claim purity in the so-called big sins that were in verse 11, so not murdering your neighbor? I well, I don't want you to raise your hands. <laughs> <laughs> Not committing adultery with your neighbor, don't raise your hand either. But our lack of mercy toward the helpless, our lack of mercy towards the helpless condemns us of being breakers of the law of liberty. With loving care for each of us, this letter was written. James wrote this letter so we would see the law of liberty and use it as a mirror, and he wants us to see in this mirror who we really are. And he wants to see that mercy triumphs over judgment. The gospel. This is the story of Jesus. Our story is the greatest tale of mercy triumphing over judgment. God is both just and merciful. And in his justice, he will not overlook the injustice of sin. He will punish sin. Therefore, all people must face the judgment seat of God. But in the gospel of Jesus, Mercy triumphs over judgment. In mercy, God sent his son to be judged on behalf of sinners. That's you and I. Therefore, God can display mercy to the undeserving and the weak and the poor. In this ultimate display of compassion, God placed judgment upon himself. He put the judgment upon himself so he might give mercy to those who can offer him nothing in return. This is mercy triumphing over judgment. Christians and non-Christians alike will stand before Christ on judgment day. If you do not follow Christ, you stand in a perilous place because God will judge sin. But know today that mercy is at hand. It is there before you. God will grant mercy to all who call upon the name of Jesus. It is a free gift. And mercy can triumph over judgment in your case, too. Christians, this is a great motivation. There's a great motivation in this letter for you and I. To speak and to act with mercy. So you might receive mercy on that judgment day. 
And not in the sense of your sins being punished because they're covered by Jesus, but in the sense of the rewards of living a life in obedience to Christ and reflecting Christ. You will be rewarded someday for your response to the degree that you displayed Christ's likeness in yourself. For Christ's judgment seat, he will reward those who have displayed compassion and mercy for others. Acne, it can be a real problem. I had it real bad as a teen, uh, but my dad, um, he had it even worse. And so one of those things when you have some, a problem and um, someone has something worse than you, um, they can comfort you by telling their stories. So he always told me about his acne, and his plight was so bad that he would get these boils on his back, and he said they were this round. I don't know if he was just making it up, but he said they were that big. And, yeah, kind of gross, isn't it? Yuck. <laughs> but the, the only way for, they tried, he tried home remedies, they tried numbers of things to try to you know, help it get better, but the only thing that really would help was for him to go to the doctor. He needed a doctor to actually lance the boils that were on his back to relieve the pain and, you know, um, get rid of the infection. The sin and the problems that we face under the skin that are in the heart cannot be treated with home remedies. I'm sure some of us have tried. We need a glorious, merciful physician to help. And Jesus Christ, who's the Lord of glory we read about, he's the one who can help. And I hope... You have heard this morning this word, and I hope that it will settle in your heart, be implanted in your heart, and empower you through the gospel to live it out in your lives and know that Jesus, he can take that little lance. I shouldn't have made that sound effect. (laughs) He can help in your weakness, right? That we can live compassionately and merciful and embrace others. Let's pray. God, help us to react to um, your word when it reveals problems in our lives that don't reflect you well, Lord. Help us to respond and react well to them, to listen, Lord, to um, be okay with the conviction. And then, Lord, we ask you to empower us through your gospel to live it out and to be doers of your word. Lord, give us compassion for others. May that really be a, a chief mark of us as Christians, that we have compassion towards those who are created in your image. Lord, help. Thank you for your mercy, and thank you that your mercy triumphs over all judgment. In Jesus' name.